Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. When we were asked to partner up with Willa's Kitchen, we couldn't say no. Everyone at FBCHQ is lactose intolerant, and Willa's Kitchen has helped us keep our bellies happy and our bodies caffeinated. Willa's was founded by two sisters who were tired of plant-based milks that were mostly made of artificial, highly processed ingredients and loads of sugar, rather than actual plants. Plus, their grandmother Willa's recipe used real organic ingredients to create a deliciously smooth oat milk. And they thought, why not bring hers to the world instead? And we are so grateful. (laughs) As they started on their entrepreneurial journey, they kept learning more and more about the way plant-based milks are normally made. Heavy processing, loads of food waste, and lots of funny business, including ingredients like rapeseed and canola oil that they didn't want to be drinking or feeding to their kids every day. The biggest shocker they found was that oat milk is typically made with the oat sugar. The best parts of the oat are filtered out, and that results in an oat milk with a super sweet taste without all of the benefits of the oats. Willa's is made with the entire oat, which gives it a rich, smooth taste and maintains all the oats protein and prebiotic fiber and makes Willa's zero food waste. And it's not just a healthier, more sustainable oat milk, it's super tasty. That's why Willa's been highlighted in Bon Appetit not once, but three times. Find Willa's oat milk at willaskitchen.com. That's Willa's, W-I-L-L-A-S, kitchen, K-I-T-C-H-E-N.com. And with the promo code bookclub, you can get 20% off and support this podcast. That's promo code bookclub at willaskitchen.com for 20% off. Thanks, Willa's. Hey, everyone. It's Taylor here with the Feminist Book Club podcast. I am here with Tasia Eisen, writer of some of my best friends' essays on lip service. Tasia Eisen is a writer, editor, and voice actor. Her essays and criticisms have appeared in dozens of outlets across the U.S. and Canada. She is the editor-in-chief of Catapult Magazine, the former digital editor of The Walrus, and has also edited for Electric Literature. She is the co-editor of the essay anthology, The World As We Knew It, Dispatches from a Changing Climate. A voice actor for more than two decades, Eisen can be found on such animated shows as Atomic Betty, The Berenstein Bears, Super Y, Go Dog Go, Jade and the Dragon, and many others. So thank you so much, Tasia, for joining me today. I guess my first question is kind of a doozy. I am just very interested in the concept of cancel culture um, these days. So with the rampant black and white thinking of cancel culture, pretty much should be canceled based on that (laughs) logic. Uh, What purpose do you think cancel culture serves and how do you reconcile consuming content from problematic sources or the sources in your book that you um, kind of reference as providing lip service? That is definitely a doozy, (laughs) but thank you. Um, for the question, I guess to address the first part of your question, I mean, the the book is sort of, the book is not about cancel culture. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's almost like it enters into a similar, a similar set of questions, but takes a very different approach. Cause in the book, you know, I'm really interested in looking at these moments where institutions have sort of paid lip service or done some sort of tokenizing gesture that, you know, we realize feels uncomfortable 
Um, and really taking them at face value and sort of asking what was the goal here? Why didn't it work? Why does it make us feel weird? How was the execution kind of icky? So I really wanted, you know, rather than just sort of dismissing those gestures out of hand as is kind of, as you say, the logic of cancel culture, I wanted to sort of get get down in the muck and kind of just really kind of grapple with them, with the, with the, the nuances of the issues that something like cancel culture doesn't really, doesn't always allow us. So I wanted the book to sort of move at a, at a slower pace than, you know, obviously that of something like online conversation. I also wanted to bring a more generous, good faith uh, approach to some of these issues. Like the reason I chose the term lip service rather than something like performative allyship or virtue signaling is because I feel like, you know, both of those sort of belong, they're very useful terms, but they sort of belong more to that kind of faster paced. They're just, they're both a little loaded. And I wanted to create a space for asking questions that um, the sort of the churn of <laughs> the internet doesn't always allow. In terms of what I think the purpose of cancel culture is, I, I see it as an attempt to call for accountability, but it can so easily, <laughs> if what you want is accountability, you sort of uh, miss out on those ends if what you do is to sort of shunt someone out of the conversation altogether. So in terms of how I use sources in the book that, you know, might have transgressed in some way, I really wanted to open up a space for conversation for like bringing the reader in and saying, hey, I know you feel this too. Wasn't this kind of weird? What does it mean? What does it mean about the way we live? How can we sort of act and move forward in the face of it? And I definitely appreciate that nuance that you provided in the book. It really raised a lot of questions for me. I'm the type of person who likes to like write in the margins and things like that. So like mm -hmm. I write questions and things that like were brought up for me. And I know in your essay, Hearing Voices, you talk about kind of the role of animation and that industry as being subversive and acting as caricature. That can kind of be the role of a lot of things, right? To just raise questions for people and have people like think more critically about like the things that they're consuming. To your standards, how can a work, whether that is animation or writing a book, an article, things like that, how can a work be both subversive and caricature responsibly? I think for something like animation, I mean, as I write in the book, it's sort of because it is a, a form and a space where sort of realism has never been the goal. It was surprising to me when suddenly the proposed fix for the various problems of inequality that we see across the industry, that the fix is like that the actors must always match the characters. Um, the body of the actor must always correspond with the body of the character. And while I think that's a very well-intentioned solution, as I write in the book, it sort of papers over all the other problems that sort of get neglected as a result. If the rule is Black characters should only be played by Black people, that ignores the question, for example, how many Black characters <laughs> are we going to write more of them? Who's going to be writing them? Who gets to tell those stories? So when it comes to something like subversion and caricature, I feel like, you know, just at a moment when we are starting to have these conversations about how to make the industry more inclusive, it would be a real shame if, for example, as soon as more racialized creators and showrunners 
find footing in the industry, there's sort of this new set of rules imposed upon them where they're not able to take advantage of the form's very kind of playful, subversive political capacity. And I think in terms of doing it responsibly, like it really, I I always think about it as a question of of power. It it depends on if something like uh, caricature is used as a form of critique by somebody who has, you know, historically been disenfranchised or being shut out of an industry, then it's an incredibly powerful tool. You know, conversely, if it's being used by somebody who the whole industry was like created to exist for and placate and raise up and provide structural advantages to, then that's just punching down and it's gross. <laughs> right. And going back to kind of like my cancel culture question, I kind of think of that I have like my own like kind of standards of whether or not I'm going to quote unquote cancel somebody is if they are using the work to punch up or punch down and like what are the power dynamics at play and like the historical context of Mm -hmm. what they're using their platform to do um so yeah I think that's great so in your essay tiny white people you mentioned in high school you were learning the skill to pick out what the contours of what makes books objectively good. So I was definitely curious to know what are those contours in like your perspective? Well, I guess that defeats the purpose of objectively good. So what are those (laughs) contours that make a book objectively good? And do you think they are necessary in all contexts for like, in other words, do you think that all books have to always be objectively good? I'm so grateful to you for picking out that phrase from the book, because it is a very sort of, it's a very kind of complicated one. And I think my my instinct when you asked the question was to say, like, of course, it's subjective. But then you point out that the word objective is in it. Like, I, I do think, I, I think when, when I used it at that point in the book, I was talking about sort of my high school and undergraduate literary education and how it felt like that was the way they were teaching you how to read. It was very sort of formalized and focused on like specific literary devices and was very kind of, you know, it was was about like rhetoric and building an argument. That was as a young writer, really exciting to me because I thought, (laughs) I guess I I thought that was objectivity. Like I, I think that that whole essay is sort of, it's about unlearning a lot of things. And I think the idea that there was something that made books objectively good was one of those things that I had to unlearn. And like what I sort of came to understand and still very much believe is that it's very much about a mode of of reading. And it's, you know, which writers get the latitude of being talked about, like their work is a sort of objectively good, natural product of genius and which books are talked about, um, which are, you know, as I say in the book, disproportionately the work of Black and racialized writers, as if we only read them because they are meant to teach us something, that they are, you know, good for us and we are morally better for having consumed them. I mean, I think that line is the sort of, it's very specific to where I was at that time. I was kind of enamored of the idea of a literary canon, thought there was a way to kind of decode what, (laughs) what it took to gain entry into it. And it's not, it's just like, you know, the books that get talked about, like they are works of genius, the books that get talked about, like they're, as I, as I say, in the book, high in fiber. Um, and that's very much how my literary education felt to me. That was a lot of work that I had to do to sort of 
unlearn that thinking. And I think we kind of still see that. So I'm very much a part of like book talk and bookstagram and things like that. And I feel like we do still see that, but I've kind of curated my feed a little bit to mostly include people who talk about like books written by Black and racialized authors. So just like seeing like just the divide of like what books I think are good and what books just get a lot of hype, Mm -hmm. even if they're not written by white authors. I just see that there are certain things that I feel like still fall prey to kind of like the things that you talked about of what makes a book objectively good and kind of finding the Black and racialized authors who follow that formula a little bit more are the books that get talked about. And I know you mentioned in your essay, Do You Read Me, how uh, the book, The Other Black Girls, just got picked up and like the interest just like blew up. And I know there was like a lot of tension on Bookstagram. And I thought it was a really good book because of the subtle messages that were portrayed in it. Mm-hmm. And how it was framed as like a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of people thought that was like boring and unnecessary. So like I even see some of those like objectively good characteristics being projected onto other books, even though the characteristics are were created from the lens of like white authors, white critics, things like that, and being projected by Black book reviewers onto Black books. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I mean, I think we have a lot, we have a long way to go in terms of like developing a more just robust vocabulary for talking about the work of Black writers. I think, you know, when (laughs) there have been, when a book is doing something different because the logic of publishing is to kind of you know, put it on a shelf and kind of compare it to what exists. Use the logic that if it worked before, it will work again. It's very hard to break those patterns. And if Black writers have only been let into the halls of mainstream publishing to tell this tiny sliver of storytelling, it's incredibly difficult to, you know, get in there and like widen those walls um, and develop more capacious language for talking about what's happening on the page, um, but it's it's so important. Trying to shift talking about books to more so like essays and articles. Um, I know you talked about like the personal essay and the demand from editors and audiences for writers to kind of lay out their trauma for the world to see and for those audiences to be able to be voyeurs in a sense, to watch the writers as they're doing that intimate labor of working through the meaning of that trauma within like the piece. What was the experience of writing personally like for you in this book? And I noticed that it didn't seem like a lot of like, oh, like this traumatic experience happened to me when I was like 12 and this is what it means to my life as like a lot with like memoirs. So what was it like to kind of marry that personal writing with just that critique of your essays? Well, I'm really glad it didn't feel like that. Thank you. <laughs> in writing the book, yeah, I had to figure out how much uh, of myself I was comfortable putting into it. The first the first draft that I filed to my editor was very heavily weighted on the side of the critical. Um, there was very little of me in it. 
Um, and the notes that came back to me were like, this is great. This is smart. This is fun. But like, where are you? <laughs> you know, we want to see more of your voice and your story. I, I was nervous to put more of myself in the book because I, I do know that, you know, as someone who did sort of came of age online as a writer in the during the personal essay boom, I know how easy it is for my my stories, my subject position to be kind of misinterpreted and to be sort of shaped into that narrative of suffering of trauma, even if that's not what I'm trying to express. You know, I had all that in the back of my mind as I was working on the book and I had to find the voice in which to tell it. And I think what really helped me in kind of filtering myself into the book was the sense of absurdity that that so much of the essays are really built on. Like, because the to me, the the nature of these subjects are just inherently kind of funny and a little ridiculous. Like when a corporation does something that is obviously meant to like quickly paper over decades of racist behavior, it's like often they're really showing their ass and it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> kind of taking that that sense of of curiosity, of playfulness, of wonder, of absurdity, and bringing that to the personal material as well was really helpful for me and sort of allowed me to approach the way that these subjects interacted with my life in a way that that didn't kind of play into those predetermined narratives. And of course, the difficulty of it is that a certain kind of reader is going to read it that way anyway. Like so people will read this book and be like, Taja Eisen writes about how painful it is to experience racism or Taja Eisen writes about the struggle of being Black. And I... I, I don't and I didn't, but that's, again, the sort of limited vocabulary that we have for talking about work by racialized writers. But I, I loved writing this book. It was, it was a joyful experience for me. It was really, I really felt like I wanted to unpick a lot of knots and like explain these patterns and tendencies that I was seeing in the world. And it was very clarifying for me just on a personal level to sort of lay out this worldview um, and feel like, you know, I understand these things better now when they happen in, in the world. It definitely didn't come off to me as like, oh my gosh, like, I just have to like exploit all of my personal trauma in order to sell books. So <laughs> I definitely appreciate that because sometimes like sometimes memoirs and like books like that can kind of feel like, okay, like, are you playing this up in order because you felt pressured by like editors and, but I definitely felt like, I got a glimpse into your life and how that played a role in shaping your lens into your opinions and your thoughts about a lot of the things that you wrote about. Mm -hmm. How do you think we can read critically in our lives? And do you think that there is a time and place for that? Or should we be reading critically all the time? Like, should we be reading the smut romances from like a critical race theory lens or um, do you think there's a time and place for that and what role do you think books play in the proverbial revolution mm, great question I think there's a time and place I mean I think if you want to read your smutty romances and like turn your brain off that's like that's important too. <laughs> that's I love a I love to escape into a good thriller and I I think so much of what books are, are are there to provide like even this book even my book is 
I mean, certainly it is meant to sort of explain and illuminate and like articulate and put words to things that people have felt but might not have been able to express, but it's also there to give pleasure. And so I think taking each book on its own terms, I think a book will, (laughs) it's almost like a book will tell you how to read it. And when I say, when I say a book will tell you how to read it, I also mean that, you know, you might go into something thinking it's going to be a pleasurable turn the brain off experience. And then like, whoops, there's something horribly offensive in there that pulls you right out of it. So the book doesn't always know it's telling you, I guess is what I'm saying. But in terms of the role that the book plays in the proverb, the books play in the proverbial revolution, I think both halves of that equation are equally important. They are there to, they are there to educate. Um, they are there to open conversation. They are there to make us see things differently, but they're also there when we need rest and when we need an escape. What books or writers would be part of the icing canon or summer reading list? Um, mm-hmm. What books would you suggest for our readers? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the Eisen Canon and the summer reading list are like two different lists. Um, I feel like as I head into my summer, I am reading equal parts, smart personal nonfiction. I recently read Melissa Phoebos's Body Work, um, which is uh, a craft book about writing personal narrative. Um, and I'm now going back and filling the gaps in her canon that I hadn't experienced before. I'd never read Abandon Me, her essay collection, or Whip Smart, her memoir. Um, and she's just such a, an incredibly skilled and perceptive and generous writer. Also, as I mentioned earlier, really like a good thriller. <laughs> um, I love literary work that dabbles with genre. I'm a big fan of Dan Sean, and I'm excited about his forthcoming book, Sleepwalk. There's a a book of short stories on the, uh, it was shortlisted for the Booker International Prize. It's called Cursed Bunny by Bora Chung. I just picked up a copy of that. It seems absolutely horrifying and I'm very excited about it. (laughs) Um, And just more essay collections. Those are sort of my my favorite modes. It's like smart nonfiction, often with a personal bent, people who are kind of combining personal narrative with cultural criticism. And then, you know, literary fiction, often that's like doing interesting and unexpected things with genre. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Where can people find you and your work? Well, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, My handle is at Taja Eisen. My website is TajaEisen.com. And uh, I'm also on Instagram under the exact same name. (laughs) And those are the best places to kind of find more of my work and where to buy the book. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's been a total joy. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature.